Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with The Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This episode, we'll be reading The Girl Engine Driver, A Tale of a Race with a Forest Fire, by W.D. Morris. This story was first published in The People's Friend in 1916. It's a dramatic one, and it'll be read for us today by Marion from the Friend Features team. Over to Marion. So you wish, young man, to marry my daughter, queried Curly and Murray. And how, may I ask, since I happen to be her father and guardian, do you propose to keep her in the way to which she has been accustomed? You know my pay as engineer on your line, sir. It is all I have to offer. But Jocelyn is not afraid for the future. I have hopes also of raising higher in the company's service. You, Mr Murray, I have heard have risen from the roundhouse to be president of the line. What one man has done, another may do. I like your grit, Mayhew. You have a good record as engineer, I learn. As a man, I have nothing against you. As an engineer of the SP&K, who wishes to be my son-in-law, that is quite another matter. Jocelyn is my only child, and I have other views for her. If it's my position, Mr Murray, that is scarcely a matter of my own choice, since a man must work to live. I entered the SP&K after passing through Harvard on my father's death. He died after the crash on Wall Street that left him ruined. We love each other, and I ask your consent. And I refuse. Jocelyn is too young yet to know her own mind. This is just girlish fancy that will soon pass. And, understand, I forbid it absolutely. You are a strong man, Mr Murray, they say, on this road which you rule as president, the young engineer returned quietly. But you will find that in this your power has its limits. We shall see, young man. If Jocelyn marries without my consent, she knows she is no longer daughter of mine. As for you, Mayhew, I do not dismiss you, as I might, but after today you will be transferred to another section of the line. For a full moment the two men stood facing one another. The tall, lithe figure and clean-cut face of the young engineer contrasting strongly with the sturdy, square-built form and rugged, powerful face of the President. I understand, Mr Murray, said Roy Mayhew slowly as he turned to go. And in return, I give you fair warning that until Jocelyn herself sends me away, I shall never give her up. Till then, no President of any line in all the states shall keep our lives apart. The day had been one of close, oppressive heat, following a long succession of such days. Evening had brought little relief, and the sick man, who had been lying in a restless sort of sleep, tossed uneasily, and with a sudden start, opened his eyes. The young woman, 
she seemed little more than a girl, who had been reading by a shaded lamp, rose instantly and came towards the bed. Feeling better, Roy? she asked softly. Better? Oh yes, I'll soon be all right again with your nursing, dear. I had a queer dream. It woke me up, I think. I dreamt I saw you driving the Western Mail, Jocelyn. You were standing by the throttle, and you waved to me as you passed our cottage. I wanted hard to call back and couldn't, and then I woke. Queer, wasn't it? He smiled at her, his eyes resting fondly on the sweet, expressive, oval face, crowned by masses of deep auburn, out of which looked down into his eyes of the darkest blue, in their depths just now a world of love. But dreams, they say, go by contraries, she said half seriously. And that means, you know, they'll be giving you the running of the mail. And after the way you saved your own local and got this hurt, why, it would be only just natural. You've great faith in the company's gratitude, sweetheart. And they have been good to us while I've been lying here. But I'm keen to be back. It's hard on you, Jocelyn, this confinement. I can't help thinking at times of what you left for this. Do you never have just one little shade of regret, sweetheart? He asked wistfully with a sick man's fancy. Regret? The wealth of love in her look was answer enough. We have been happy, so happy in our little cottage, dear. Only one thing could make it complete. If father would send us his forgiveness. And do you know, Roy, I somehow feel tonight that he will. Soon. They call him the Iron President on the road. A hard man, but just. Yes. You would not have left him, dear, if, if it could have been otherwise. He would take you back tomorrow, you know, if, if I left you, Roy. Left you when you most needed me. She bent and kissed him. You remember the words the minister read that day. For this cause also shall one leave father or mother, and they twain shall be one flesh. For a long moment they remained thus silent, hand clasped in hand, time forgotten, their thoughts centred on that day, a brief year ago, when Jocelyn had braved all for love's sake. Clear upon the still night air came the low, deep thunder of the approaching westbound mail, and scarce consciously they listened, waiting expectant, till it swept through Butte City. A moment later, however, came the harsh, grinding scream of the brakes, as it drew to a standstill just without the station, almost opposite the cottage. Why, they've pulled up, Jocelyn. There's something surely wrong, and isn't that someone coming here? She rose quickly and drew aside the curtains, looking out into the night. It's the conductor, Roy, and yes, he's coming here. What can have happened? She opened the door to the sharp, imperative knock that came a moment later. The train conductor, with a quick greeting, stepped hastily into the room, glancing towards the bed. We're in a bad fix, Mayhew, he said hurriedly. Engineer Guthrie had a heat stroke six miles back. His fireman took the mail on here, but he's nervous at the throttle. Can't or won't take a further. 
and there's no engineer within 50 miles. I don't like asking you, Mayhew, but if you could, the company won't forget. But he can't, Mr. Mellon, exclaimed Jocelyn. He isn't fit yet, you can see for yourself. As Mayhew, with a quick effort, half rose from the bed, only to fall back again with a suppressed groan. It wouldn't matter so much, maybe, if we had only an ordinary crowd of passengers, the conductor returned with a vexed frown. But we've got a party of our very biggest officials aboard, including the president of another line, and we don't want him to think the Northern can't run their own mail. I'd do it, Mr. Mellon, if I could, but you see how it is. A sudden light leaped into his eyes as he looked across to his wife. Jocelyn read in them the unspoken thought. The warm colour ebbed and flowed to her cheeks the lacework about her throat rising and falling quickly, but she met the look answeringly, bravely. She'll do it, Mr. Mellon. Yes, she knows how to handle a throttle almost as well as I do. We've made the run together to Livingston often. She comes, too, of good railroad blood. The conductor glanced at the beautiful face, perhaps never more beautiful than now, with the light of a great purpose shining in the splendid dark eyes the low, broad brow and finely curved chin that spoke of strength. "'If you will, Mrs Mayhew,' he exclaimed, all doubt overcome. "'Won't we sure have the laugh over the President? "'I'll just wait for you outside till you're ready. "'You'll not keep me long, I reckon.' Steam was hissing from the big dome of the great Mogul engine, a tremor pulsating through its massive frame, as if it were impatient at the delay and eager to be off through the night, as Jocelyn stood beneath the polished jacket that towered far above her. Compared with this giant, her husband's engine seemed a mere toy. The conductor helped her up into the cab, where the fireman, a long-limbed Kentuckian, stared at the strange apparition in overalls as if she were a being from another world. "'This is Mrs Mayhew, Joss,' said the conductor." Her husband runs the local here, but he's too sick to come. You'll do all you can for her, I reckon. Sure, conductor. You can just reckon on that, came the instant response, the ready chivalry of the Kentuckian awakened. I'll be proud to fire for her, I guess. The starting bell rang. All aboard, came the warning cry. With fingers that trembled just a little, Jocelyn gently opened the throttle. The wheels underneath began to turn, slowly at first, and then quicker and quicker as the mogul gathered speed, till at length the sound became one deep, throbbing monotone. The westbound mail was again underway. The year 1916 will long be associated out west with the spell of drought that visited the forest states. Not for twenty years had a drier season been known. Day after day the earth had languished under a sky of brass, with scarce a cloud to temper the stifling heat that poured down upon it from a white globe of fire. Forest fires had been for some days reported from various districts, and homesteaders were fleeing before its devastating track, happy in escaping with their bare lives. At Butte City, however, where the Mayhews lived, little danger was anticipated of the fire coming that way. The town lay just within the foothills of the Sierras, the northern main line of railway running through it, and thence by hill and valley and canyon, beginning its gradual climb to the summit, descending again to the broad Sacramento plains and the edge of the Pacific. 
From the engineer's high settle in the left of the cab, her right hand on the throttle lever, Jocelyn kept her eyes steadily fixed on the twin lines of steel ahead, gleaming white under the great headlight. Stripped to bare arms, his face dripping with sweat, the fireman rocked back and forth. The long gradient the male was now meeting called for every ounce of steam. Slowly, over the crest of the dark wooded hills to the east, a red, full-orbed moon climbed and threw its wan light over hill and valley. The weird beauty of the scene, the night's overpowering hush, broken only by the steady rhythmic beat of the engine, thrilled to every fibre of Jocelyn's being. In the mogul's resistless flight, she felt as if borne on the wings of the wind, its mighty power subservient to her lightest touch. The gradient passed, the track now ran for miles, straight as an arrow's flight through high walls of green that shut out the view on either side. Familiar to her from her frequent traverse of it on her husband's slow-stopping local, it called for no special care. She suffered her errant thoughts to wander back to the little green frame house in Butte City. She was again in the shaded sick room. Heart spoke again to heart its innermost secrets. Thoughts none other may share. Back in the tender, the fireman, snatching a brief respite while the spacious furnace was full and the track ran level, had meanwhile been watching on the western horizon an odd flickering light. At first it came and went uncertainly, then grew brighter, larger and steadier, like the reflected glow of a city. Yet he knew there was no city there. He sprang onto the piled-up coal of the tender, shading his eyes with both hands the better to observe it. Suddenly it burst into a broad band of red-shot light. A moment later the engine swept round one of the long curves by which the track flowed forward along the winding valley, opening to the spellbound gaze of the two in the gab a vision of hill and tree and valley in a ruby light. Broader and brighter each moment, with incredible swiftness, it spread east and west, circling them with a ring of fire. The low moaning of the rising wind heralding its approach sounded in their ears. For a full moment, awed, fascinated, they watched. Then, the lake! It's our only chance, shouted the fireman. Let her out for all she's worth, miss. We've just got to make it. Knowing as she did every mile of the road, it needed not the fireman's words to tell Jocelyn that their one hope of safety lay in reaching Tranter's Lake, some ten miles distant. But to gain it, she well knew, they must first cross the Long Trestle Bridge at Beaver Canyon, if the bridge still stood. With set lips, she crushed back the numbing fear, as with throttle lever pulled back to its furthest notch, the long train leaped forward like a flying meteor and its wild race with death. Back on the cars, the red glaze now lighting up the windows had drawn the passengers to gaze, helpless, fascinated, on the terrifying spectacle. Making his way through them, now and then pausing to speak words of assurance where panic seemed likely to prevail, the conductor entered the private car of the railroad officials attached to the rear of the train. I've come to ask you gentlemen to stand by me in case anything should happen, he said abruptly, breaking upon their low-toned conversation. They're getting panicky back there on the cars, some of them anyway, wanting to stop the train, 
saying we're only running into the danger. I'm for holding on at all costs to reach Trantor's lake. I'm with you in that, conductor, came the instant reply of the president of the neighbouring line. How far do you make it yet to the lake? Something over ten miles, sir. And we're running about sixty. We'll just make it, I reckon, if they hold on in the cab. The coolest man aboard. Perhaps he also best understood the danger. But time was, scarce twenty years back, when he had himself driven an engine through the perils of a forest fire. Yes, it all hangs on the cab. And I had not meant to tell you, gentlemen, till the end of the run, but the driver there is a woman. I could get no one else to take on the mail. Her husband, Engineer Mayhew, was too ill and... Mayhew, did you say? broke in the President, a quick pallor overspreading his face as he reeled back. It's my own little girl, gentlemen, he whispered chokingly. My own Jocelyn. The traffic superintendent laid a quick arm around his shoulder. We'll pull through with God's help, Mr. Murray, he said. She's a girl in a thousand. I'd be proud sure to call her my own. See how we're travelling? We'll be at the lake in a few minutes now. In the cab, their eyes stung with the acrid smoke, throat and lips parched by the hot, choking air, the two fought silently their grim fight with death. Scarce three score yards divided the track on either side from the edge of the forest, and the hot, smoky breath of the fire drove across, carrying upon it clouds of sparks and ever and again burning brands as some giant tree crashed to earth. Climbing bravely over the piled-up coal, the fireman filled his bucket, drenching Jocelyn's smoke-blackened overalls. Again he climbed on the same errand. As he stumbled back, over the swaying smokestack, he caught a glimpse of the trestle at Beaver Canyon. A wild, hoarse cry broke from his lips. The trestle, miss! It's a light! And the watchman's gone! But we must chance it! Let her out now, all you know! A moment later, the engine shot out between the walls of fire onto the trestle, swaying and rocking ominously as it took the smoking ties. With the swaying movement, the engine bell began to toll, mingling with a swelling, mournful cadence of a hymn rising from the cars. Above it all, in a deep, diapason note, came the roar of the flaming forest. And in that wild harmony, smoke-blackened, blistered and scarred, the westbound mail swept across to safety. Through the crowd of wildly cheering passengers gathered round the engine at Tranter's Lake, President Murray's square-built figure clove its way. From the footplate, her eyes shining through a mist of gathering tears, Jocelyn watched him draw near. One foot he placed on the lower step, his arms upward, outstretched and with a long, glad sigh of utter content, Jocelyn Mayhew stepped downward into their close embrace. Did you know that The Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. 
If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Oddfellows can help. And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Oddfellows can help with that too. They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Oddfellows a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was The Girl Engine Driver by W.D. Morris, which was first published in The People's Friend on May the 28th, 1916. And uh, that story was read for you by Marion from the Friend Features team. Marion joins me just now. Hello, Marion. Hello, Ian. And I'm also joined by Tracy from the Friend Fiction team. Hello, Tracy. Hello, Ian. And Barry Sullivan from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, Barry. Hello. And just there, I've just realized that you're the only person who gets a surname on these episodes. That would make me the breakout star, would it, Ian? I I believe that (laughs) makes you the breakout star. I I think we've established this. (laughs) I'm surnaming people. I mean McDonald, by the way, just in case anyone wondered. <laughs> so, the girl engine driver. We, we won't start with the uh, incredulity at the idea a girl can be an engine driver. Um, instead, what I, w- what I would like to start with, actually, is this is an American story, except unlike the first episode of this podcast we recorded, which was subtitled An American Adventure, this one actually has American things in it, like American place names. What, what do we think about it being an American story? How about if we start there? It makes it very glamorous for a 1916 friend reader, doesn't it, to have a story set in America, I would think. There's something romantic about the Sierras, I think. Yes. <laughs> Did we even sell overseas in those days? Was it an attempt to capture another market? We did sell overseas, and there were subscriptions going all over the world for the People's Friend at that point. Ah. Um, whether the Americas were a big market... To be honest, when I read this and I realised it was set in America, I had wondered whether it was something to do with the war and really just the writers or the editors wanting a a break from, I guess, the day-to-day in in Old Blighty at that point. Well, one thing I did notice when I was going looking for these stories is that the issues that are kind of published during the war, they don't shy away from talking about it. There's quite a lot of grim stuff in there. So... It makes sense for this to be a sort of a little bit of escapism and where better to escape to than somewhere that's relatively safe. You say relatively, I mean, the forest is on fire. (laughs) Not all the time, presumably. (laughs) At least once every 20 years, going by the story. But it's the kind of story I could see, I could see it in the Friends now, actually, very similar storylines, you know, thwarted love, um, feisty woman, I, th- I think it would it would definitely it stood the test of time, and it would illustrate beautifully, as well. You've always got a an eye on an illustration. You could almost see this Tracy being part of a serial, couldn't you? <laughs> I certainly could, yeah. But I thought it was a really strong story, and it's still the kind of story that um, gets submitted to us now. You know, because we do have very strong period stories, and I, it, it would fit in perfectly. I did think the conclusion was really dramatic. Um, I, d- I don't read many 
terribly dramatic stories, or I, I haven't uh, on the friend in in recent years. Um, they they probably exist um, for anyone who's going to angrily write me and tell me that there are plenty of dramatic stories in the magazine. I'm sure they <laughs> exist. But uh, this this the conclusion of this story was was really kind of page turning. It was pacey and it had a nice rhythm, and it's I like the way it started as well. Because that idea of looking for the hand of the the boss's daughter is quite a well-worn trope in sort of romance circles, but then it takes a turn. And I'm, I mean, it's it's sort of foreshadowed by the dream and you know premonitions of of uh, death and so on. Much sort of read about at that point or written about at that point, but uh, it, it doesn't really give much of a clue as to the way it's going to go, other than you know the tale of a race with a forest fire, which unfortunately gives a little bit away. But even then. It, it was quite unusual to see, and it wasn't the the male character that you know saved the day to win round the angry potential father in law either. That made a nice change. Ah, uh, but here's the thing: the conclusion to that particular strand of the story, so the um, the thwarted love thing, kind of happens off screen or off page. I guess there there's no guarantee that he's changed his mind about any of that stuff. It's implied, you know, she says that she expects that it's going to happen, but that doesn't mean that it's not like, hey, I'm really happy you're okay. Uh, come away with me now because he's no good to you. <laughs> I think the fact he doesn't drop her at the end kind of makes you think he was probably all right with it. <laughs> it would be an entirely different story if she stepped down from the engine and he just walked past him. <laughs> I kind of wish we'd been introduced to Jocelyn earlier in the story because she's a bit of a surprise when she turns up sort of a third of the way through. We hear it, the scene from our husband's and her father's point of view and then we meet her and something weird has happened and we never quite know really what it is. We just know that Roy is laid up because of something he did on the train <laughs> and he's nearly okay but he's not quite yet. Yeah, he's hurt in quite a manly way is what we assume. You know, He hasn't just tripped or, or got a case of something, a, a slight sniffle. He's been hurt, you know, serving the railways. No manlier a task can there be. <laughs> yes. So I, as is my want, when I read this, I went for a, a wander through the British newspaper archive. And uh, lo and behold, there was a story with the headline, Girl Engine Driver. And it was from about 10 or 11 years prior to this actual story being written. And I'll read you a small excerpt if I can. Girl Engine Driver California has a young girl who has solved the mysteries of the locomotive. The curves and the grades of the roads are not obscure to her. She is Miss Lola Coulter. She is a fair-haired girl of 14. She has always taken an interest in machinery, and when she met her first railroad train a few weeks ago, it was only a few days before she was in the cab. That's amazing. And California too. Yeah. And California. I wonder if W.D. Morris read that report. You have to wonder. Quite a remarkable story. I mean, she's only encountered a, a, a train, you know, a matter of weeks before, but picks this up in absolutely no time. In fact, her sort of mentor, a chap called Brown, says it takes a great interest in his pupil and is very proud of her. She says she has learned how to handle the engine much quicker than any fireman. The more intricate the mechanism, the easier she learned its use and just how it's affected by adjacent pieces. So there, there is precedent. There was another, there was another story around about the same time as well, but I, I just, that, that's, 
that stood out to me. That's fantastic. There's even a story starter there, isn't there? That would be interesting to see what one of our authors now, how they would write it. I think that's probably worth taking up with Fiction Ed Lucy round about the time we released this episode. Absolutely. Another thing that we picked up on uh, when we were doing the recording was at some stage there is a date mentioned and the story followed what we reckon, Marion and I reckoned, was the precedent at the time. It it had the date as 19 dash. Oh, yeah. The, the line is the year 19 dash will be associated out west with the spell of drought that visited the forest states. And we were having a, a chat about it. Um, in the in Marion's recording, we put the year 1916 because it just sounded weird saying 19 dash. I don't know if any of you know kind of why they did that. Um, it, it seems strange now, but it's it's definitely, I mean, it's in Jane Austen and it's in you know, like things that were published long before this story. But do you know why they would have done that? I had always assumed it was longevity in a way. If you don't date something, it, it makes it vague in one respect, and then it does it, does, it can't date from that point, if you, if you know what I mean. The, a lot of authors, a lot of writers did this with surnames, I noticed back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They would do this with uh, people's surnames. And that was to add a degree of credibility to the author. Again, if you don't name somebody specifically, it could be anyone. So I guess this this could be any time. But it's interesting as well, because a lot of these stories in The People's Friend we know were read out to families, maybe around the fire on a Sunday afternoon or something. So they must have had a way of accommodating those kind of printing conventions and Ian and I were kind of talking about this. How would they have read it at the time? We'll never know, but I would love to. You come to one of these names or or names of places or years, and do you just put in the current year? Do you make a name up? Do you go 19 blank? It also makes you think they would have kept their copies then, keep the copies for a few years and then read it to the grandchildren and you can insert current year, whatever, that sort of thing. We know people kept things and passed them on and, and that sort of thing as well, as they still do, you know, now. so And then reprise them as podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> timeless. Friend stories are timeless, I think, just goes to prove. Indeed. The other thing kind of linguistically that we picked up on, um, or rather that Marion picked up on, because she was the one unfortunate enough to have to read it, was the word diapason. Oh, yes. (laughs) Apparently it's related to an organ. Yeah, I wish you'd warned me that was coming up because I've forgotten exactly what it means now. (laughs) It is something to do with organs and harmonies and it's bass notes. But I did have to look that up. It kind of fitted because they've got this harmonic musical kind of metaphor going in that section so if you know your organs i guess it fits in beautifully who are <laughs> um we found the uh, the meaning of the word diapason we're on tenderhooks <laughs> a tonal grouping of the flue pipes of a pipe organ thank you told you it was something to do with an organ um and indeed it was a magazine for american organ builders and players it's <laughs> a niche audience I'm already thinking of the illustration. <laughs> <laughs> On that, actually, I mean, I don't, I don't know if your um, listeners will get a chance to see this, Ian, but the illustration that goes with this particular story is very unusual. It looks like a relief print, you know, like um, 
what's, how, what would you describe that, that particular process? You know, when you scrape away something and, and press it back down again, uh, is, is it done in relief? So it's basically the whole picture is dark with just little edges of white to illustrate the train. It's a really unusual uh, drawing. I've never seen anything quite like that in The Friend. Yeah, it's dark, isn't it? So it gets across the dark night thing. So I have a question for the editorial staff among us. How would you define a full moment? What does a full moment look like? There's a section near the part of this where um, there's a nice description of the husband and the would-be father-in-law where they regarded one another for a full moment. And I don't know what that looks like. I think it's more a feeling, isn't it? An underlying tension. Yeah, isn't it like a beat, like a, a raise in dramatic tension? I think Tracy's right. I don't think it's a measure of time. Yeah. I'd never come, come across that. I'm imagining that eye contact just now as well. Unbroken, furious eye contact. <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of that. Yeah. No, I just wondered if something you would change, if, if you saw something written for a full moment, would you say, well, can you quantify that? Would you make that change? In the context, it, it would probably work and you might leave it. And then Judy would take it out. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> I think she would be furious at the title, The Girl Engine Driver. <laughs> I don't think that title would make it through. What would it be called? The Little Engine That Could. <laughs> Actually, The Little Engineer That Could. Here is a controversial opinion. Here is We will draw this conversation to a close with controversy because I hear that's how you build an audience. Jocelyn is the engine driver. She is. She has her hand on the throttle, as we are told. However, she receives frequent, perhaps unwanted advice from the fireman who tells her incredibly obvious things like, you might want to go quicker. Does that mean that she's not really the hero of this story? If he hadn't been there, would she have managed to do it? I think that says more about the guy. I think he's just providing encouragement, isn't he? He's not really mansplaining how to drive the train. Mm, what was I saying about the story being relevant today as well with the man? Trying to tell someone what to do. All these years later, some things never change, do they? I, I believe Tracy's been the victim of backseat driving in the past. <laughs> and I hope he didn't get to pull the whistle either. Also, the, the guy had an, an out. You know, if it all went horribly wrong, well, it was all her fault. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was part of his master plan. I don't know. He should have been frying an egg on the shovel because that's what everyone wants to do. If you're in a steam train, let's be honest, is that thing that we all saw Fred Dibner do once. Presumably you don't then eat it. Oh, can you imagine? I don't know what carbon overdose does to somebody. Well, it's a test, isn't it? Well, before we um, degenerate into giving people cooking tips, as that's a different podcast that we haven't <laughs> launched yet, um, I think we'll end it there for this episode. So it just remains for me to say thank you to Marion for your story reading um, and to Tracy and Barry for joining us as well. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. 
If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8. And that special offer is available until the 31st of May, 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend